Welcome back to Plenary Session. This is Real Life Edition. We're back for the Malignant Book Club. I'm joined by Dr. Timothy Olivier. Timothy, it's great to see you again. Great to see you, Vinay. How are you today? Good, good. We've been hard at work, but we've made time on this busy day Absolutely. to do a little recording, a little recording. So where did we leave off, Timothy? Where did we leave off? So we covered so far the first uh, section of the book, the second six, uh, section of the book that was uh, a very important section about uh, social forces. And now we will be going into the, the weeds of how to interpret clinical evidence and how to interpret um, clinical trials in cancer medicine. My favorite part, part three. All right. Part three. So we start with uh, chapter nine, which is called Study Design 201. 201, right, because 101 was in the last book. <laughs> so, so the other book. Yeah. So basically this chapter is uh, trying to, to underline some specificities about uh, cancer clinical trial mm -hmm. as compared maybe with other fields of medicine, sure. right? Mm -hmm. So you start, maybe I, I will just say you the titles and I know that this will trigger the discussion. Okay. Going nuts. Going nuts. Oh, yes. I remember it well. There was a study, I think, that came out of uh, Dana-Farber. It came out of the Harvard Hospitals and uh, it was entitled Going Nuts. No, the study wasn't called that. But if I recall correctly, this was recurrent colon cancer adjuvant. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So this was a study um, that is an observational study. Like so many observational studies in cancer medicine, this one sought to prove that among people who underwent resection and adjuvant chemotherapy for colon cancer, people who ate nuts fared better. They had less recurrence and lower mortality than people who didn't eat nuts. But it wasn't just any nut, if I recall correctly. It, you couldn't yeah. have gotten a, a peanut, which is a legume. You had to have a tree nut. And it was something like you had to eat only so many ounces of tree nuts so many times a week. And the authors had, I think, the audacity to claim that that's going to lower cancer risk and improve mortality. Whereas I think the most parsimonious explanation is that it's a confounder. And it's a confounder for socioeconomic status. Because people who can buy and afford tree nuts and budget it out so that they dole out a few ounces of tree nuts, uh, you know, three times a week, are very unique types of people. And what was the evidence I kind of marshaled in this section was, as a general rule, you know, every single drug that's approved in the metastat in the adjuvant setting is also approved in the metastatic setting. Every single drug that has a benefit in the adjuvant setting is also approved in the metastatic setting, but not all drugs approved in the metastatic setting are approved in the adjuvant setting. It's about one in three. And that's work that Eddie Maldonado and Scott Parsons and I did in JAMA Network Open. The next thing is, to my knowledge, there's not a single drug that has ever succeeded in the adjuvant setting that didn't have a response. When you give it to metastatic disease, it has some degree of tumor shrinkage. Now, I know for sure that tree nuts don't shrink cancer. And so I'm highly skeptical that tree nuts are improving outcomes in the adjuvant disease space. Um, and so you put all this together and what do you have? You have, I think, what is a classic recipe in oncology, which is many investigators are performing low credibility observational research. I do not believe that eating nuts lowers the risk of colon cancer recurrence or death. And I think if I can recall correctly in this paper, the death signal was bigger than the recurrence signal. It wasn't yeah, fully explicated yeah, by recurrence, yeah. which is further evidence that you're finding a confounder. Yeah, yeah. I think the, the point you are making here is uh, really the issue about observational studies in general and, um, and the selection bias and the residual compounding, even if you adjust for any variables you have, there will always be some residual compounding, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I think we should be clear. We shouldn't paint with too broad a brush. We were talking about this recently. Observational studies can be very useful. In fact, most of the work that you and I have published together are observational studies, to be yeah. perfectly honest. Observational studies that are about descriptive, uh, observational studies that um, characterize a space that has hitherto not been characterized, very useful. Prognosis, very useful. But observational studies to make causal claims, yeah. particularly for therapies, particularly in oncology, extremely unreliable, highly yeah. unreliable. And so this go, go back to your next uh, next point about um, I think a very important paper you talk about uh, called vibration of <laughs> effects by Chirac Patel, Belinda Bertford, and John Ioannidis. Yes, this is uh, a gr great paper. This yeah. was discussed maybe not this paper specifically, but the Brian Ozak paper. It's a it's, it's a common theme. It was discussed uh, recently by John Mandrola on sensible medicine. John Mandrola wrote he an article. It was not exactly. Yeah. No, no, he did. Yeah, he wrote a nice article on sensible medicine. And uh, he used the paper that uh, I published with uh, Nikola Zorsky um, for Vibration of Effects. And uh, I discussed it recently on this channel in uh, a lecture I gave. In Geneva. 
in Geneva, yeah. But even before that, I think I gave a lecture and I put the Geneva. I didn't record the audio. I didn't put it out in plenary yeah, session. Yeah. Um, all right. Anyway, what's the what's the what do you need to know? <clears throat> there are some observational data sets that have many many covariates in it, and it also knows if someone's alive or dead. One famous such example is the N. Haynes data set, a food frequency questionnaire people took for many years. We know many years later if they're alive or dead. You can do a study as vitamin D consumption linked to all-cause mortality. Is vitamin E linked to all-cause mortality? Beta-carotene, all-cause mortality. And as you do this study, you can decide what covariates you adjust for. You can adjust for age, age and sex, age, sex, and race, age, sex, race, socioeconomic status, age, sex, race, socioeconomic status, and smoking, and a whole bunch of other things like BMI and family history of heart disease, and the list goes on, and alcohol consumption, et cetera, et cetera. And what Chirag Patel and John Unides and Belinda Buford noticed was the 13 variables people commonly adjust for. And each investigator is performing this research in isolation, but what if we were to simulate the community of researchers looking at questions, all the researchers who could look at a question? And what they did was they set up the computer in Stanford to run overnight and run every possible study, two to the power of 13 studies for single nutrient overall survival associations, just adding all the different covariates and all the possible combinations of covariates. And what they found was the effect sizes for a good chunk of these associations can go from favorable, hazard ratio less than one, to unfavorable, hazard ratio over one. And in some cases, it's statistically significant in both directions. What does that tell you? It tells you that with enough trial and error, monkeys can type Shakespeare. That, you know, a blind process will result in both answers being resulted. And why does that make sense? When you study something like coffee, nuts, berries, and cancer outcomes, don't be surprised that lots of people have looked at this question before. It's a very provocative question. People love nuts. I don't know why. People love berries. I don't know why. People love coffee and green tea. And sure enough, in some of these observational studies, it's favorable. Maybe some are unfavorable. And the reason you don't see the huge middle, the huge sea of null results, is that those aren't sexy to publish. Those don't clear the publication filters. And so I think the vibration effects paper is really, really telling. And I use it in the introduction to this chapter to really further explain to the reader why I don't personally put a lot of stock in observational studies for therapeutics and cancer medicine. Yeah, um, the, the other point you, are, you will be making, it's uh, just to give an example where you had an observational study and you are giving the example for the BRIGHT study. Oh, and yeah. it was followed by randomized <coughs> trial. I think it, it, it really shows the difference you can have between observational studies and randomized clinical control trial. It's just such a classic study. And this was the BRIGHT study. Um, it appeared, I believe, in the JCO. And it looked at people with colon cancer who were getting bevacizumab with their second-line regimen. So they got full Fox up front, maybe with bevacizumab. Now they're getting full Fury. Do you keep the Bev on or do you omit the Bev? And that was a question in Bright. And I think in Bright, which is an observational study of people who happen to get chemotherapy second line plus or minus Avastin, they found something like if you add the Avastin, you add one year of life to somebody. You, it's a monster OS benefit. And then we ran a randomized control trial. What was it? ML184, something, something like yeah. that. Some, some, uh, some numerical uh, trial. Yeah. Lancet Oncology, second line study, Avastin. In uh, plus or minus of Aston in a randomized fashion, second line, and it found a what 1.4 month, yeah, yeah. trivial, a, a trivial improvement in overall survival. Now, what's the point here? That the observational study clearly exaggerated the effect size. It exaggerated the effect size because, in addition to the Avastin benefit, people who get Avastin have the benefit of they're the kinds of people in whom the doctor think they can take Avastin, they can tolerate Avastin, they can afford Avastin. They have a doctor who knows about Avastin, and those are all. Confounding variables, confounding by indication, confounding by socioeconomic status, and they're omnipresent. And you know, since I wrote the book, there's even a better paper. There's the paper by Kumar and colleagues in JAMA uh, Network Open. And Kumar and colleagues take something like 130 randomized control trials from the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. Kumar and colleagues, for each of these randomized trials for which we have the randomized answer, they perform an observational study. And the observational study is pretty good. It uses propensity score weighting, which is a sophisticated observational technique to, to create matching. And for each of these questions, they have both now a randomized question and a observational study that's presented without any selection biases. These are all the uh, you know observational studies for every question we have a randomized trial on. And what they find is the observational studies were more than half the time, I think 60% of the time, they were favorable. The new products work, the surgery improves outcomes, the radiation therapy helps, but the randomized control trials only validated that finding 
in about a third of the cases. And so you see consistently observational treatment question decisions in oncology are upwardly biased. We're much more likely to conclude a benefit when no benefit in fact exists. Okay, so I think you are drawing the big picture. I think this chapter is really about the big picture of <laughs> what type of trials we have in oncology. So randomized clinical trial, observational da data. Uh, what about historically controlled or uncontrolled <laughs> trial? And maybe the story, I know you like to tell the story of promace cytobone. Yeah, great story. I tried to articulate it well. Promace cytobone. Promace cytobone. It has a great name, promace cytobone and promace mop. And some of the older oncologists will know what we're talking about. We're talking about multi-drug combination chemotherapy regimens that were used in lymphoma. Now, I'm going to tell the story about it. But before I say that, I want to say something. I, uh, you know, as, as we were walking over here, I was listening to something and somebody said, you know, um, Dr. So-and-so really changed the standard of care in the field um, with an uncontrolled observational, with an uncontrolled study, a study with experimental study where you just gave 50 people one treatment. And some of those studies are really game changing. You took something incurable and you have like a 97% cure rate. Okay, that's really a huge effect size. But many of these are just modest incremental differences and the comparisons are so fraught that what I wanna say is that when Dr. So-and-so changes the standard of care with an uncontrolled observational study, that's more of a political achievement than it is a scientific one. I mean, they were able to persuade others that they were right, but scientifically, it often has low credibility. And why is that the case? Let me tell you the story of this. Back in 76, I think, was the uh, seminal paper that's, oh, yeah. that supported CHOP as the standard of care therapy for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, in the years that followed that, a number of investigators, particularly those at the National Cancer Institute, wanted to improve upon CHOP, and they came up with multi-drug combination regimens, including promacytobom, which is more complicated, more toxic, more drugs. And they treated lots of people with promacytobom, and they got really good results at the NCI. I think they treated in a seminal paper like 190 plus people, and they had CR rates that were double digit percentage points higher than the historic CR rate with RCHOP. They had curative plateaus that were higher than the historical curative plateaus with RCHOP. They thought they were hitting the ball out of the park. But in a very famous 1993 randomized control trial by Rick Fisher and colleagues, randomizing people to Promace, Cytobom, CHOP, and two other multi drug combination drug, uh, regimens, there was absolutely no difference in time to treatment failure or their, their PFS of the day. And there was absolutely no difference in overall survival. The curves are superimposable. Now, one of the objections to this study was that the people in the community delivering Promacytobom, they don't know how to give the drugs. They're giving lower doses. They don't know how to push the drugs. They're confused. Rick Fisher and colleagues in, a, in response to the letter, they show that the dose intensity is the same as the NCI experience. It's not that we don't know how to give the drugs. It's that you had a wrong inference about Promacytobom. And now Promacytobom is dead. Nobody uses it. We went from CHOP to RCHOP and now RCHP, POLA. We'll see. Maybe yeah. can, can you, I don't think it's in the book, but recently I heard you talk about that. I think when you arrive at NIH, yeah. somebody told you, this is an interesting story. Because yeah. So this th is th th that is telling that sometimes we are so convinced we are doing the, the, the right thing and later it's reversed in a, in a, in a sense. Yeah, I think uh, he heard me telling it in a lecture, which was, you know, when I joined at the NCI, which was in 2012. Oh, NCI, yeah, sorry. Yeah. When I joined at the NIH NCI in 2012, there was a very senior physician that was around back in the days of Promacytobom. And this doctor had just moved from a hospital in the Midwest to come to the NCI for his fellowship. And the doctor remembers going on rounds where the senior physicians asked him, hey, back where you're from, how do you treat your lymphoma patients? He's like, well, we use CHOP. And then they all started laughing. Nah, you use CHOP. It's so antiquated. We're using Promacytobom. But a few years later, you know, it was he who was doing the, the laughing because they were doing something that just didn't improve outcomes, just added toxicity. And I want to say that some of the people who believed in Promacytobom were the most distinguished people in the field. We're talking about DeVita, Dan Longo, who's the deputy editor in New England Journal of Medicine. We're talking about uh, Vince Miller. We're talking about uh, uh, Rick Fisher himself had done some of this work. Um, and so this is always something that has been, um, you know, uh, 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 uncontrolled studies, upwardly biased. They fool people. And they fool even very smart people. And they make you think that it works when, you know, in a randomized fashion, it didn't. Before we go to the other next topic, I, I want to ask you a, a general question. Basically, are you trusting any 
uncontrolled study or any observational study, or you really based your treatment decision, I mean, you re yeah, you, do you really base your treatment decision exclusively on randomized clinical trial? That's a good question. And of course, you know the answer that, no, that you can't be an oncologist and base it solely on randomized control trials. Yeah. In, in most settings, in the frontline setting in oncology, for most common cancers, we do have randomized control trials supporting our choices. Now, thankfully, many second line choices have randomized control trials. And some of these randomized trials are even good ones, but you know, many are bad ones too. We'll talk about that, I think, in, in the in the in the next part of the conversation. Bad randomized trials. But you know, some we have a few we have a few good ones. But when you get to third line therapies, we almost have no randomized trials that provide guidance. We inherently have to make decisions based on response rate. That's okay. You know, it's okay to have to make decisions. You will have to make decisions in the absence of perfect evidence. The point of this chapter is don't make such decision with such bravado. Don't be overconfident. I mean, if you really think uh, dose-adjusted REPOC is better than RCHOP, and a lot of people thought that, well, let's run the CLGB study. Oh, they tied. You really think CRD is better than VRD? Oh, oh, in the cooperative group study, they tied. Don't be overconfident. Have some humility to know that you make, you're making a gamble. You might be wrong. Your uncontrolled studies may be uh, incorrect. And then the second thing I think it means is we have an obligation as a profession to not just take these things for granted, but to run the randomized trials. Right now, in double-hit lymphoma, a lot of people will use EPOC. I don't know that that's better than CHOP. They're doing historical comparisons. They're falling into the same patterns that we have fallen into. I'm going to do a video on this chapter about the Smart Start study. That's mm. useless. Mm. It's a totally useless study. The authors of this study, they are adding, you know, Revlimid uh, and Ibrutinib and Rituxan before EPOC. You know, uh, is that better than the standard of care CHOP? I don't know. You need a control arm. You don't need a 60-person uncontrolled study. In lymphoma, 60 people, 200 people uncontrolled studies have been unreliable. So why are you putting so much stock in that? You need to commit to randomization. And so, look, every oncologist has made many, many decisions, perhaps even the majority of our decisions, based on subpar, you know, based on non-randomized evidence. That's necessary. But we don't have to do it with arrogance. We can do it with humility and understand the limitations of the evidence, and we can commit ourselves as a profession to generating better evidence. I think those are the two take-home lessons. Um, so, you know, when people say that uh, CRD is the treatment of choice in quote-unquote high-risk myeloma based on, you know, some genetic feature, you know, they really haven't proven it, to be honest with you. Mm. You know, they haven't proven that to be true. Mm. They may believe that to be true, and, you know, we have to be cautious of the eternal... Um, fallacies of oncology. More treatment is always better. More toxicity means always it's working better. Think about autologous stem cell transplant for breast cancer. Those people believed, based on historical controlled studies, that they were doing something better. They had six randomized controlled trials showing no such better outcome and way more toxicity. And do you think that they were all stupid? Do you think that they, they you know, that we are so much smarter? We're the same people. We're just making the same mistakes. We're just much more smug about it you know, uh, then we should be if we remember history. Um, and I think that's one of the points of the chapter, that old Santayana quote, uh, he who forgets history is condemned to repeat it. Mm -hmm. um, you have to remember promesidabom. If you remember promesidabom, then maybe, you know, you wouldn't be so enthusiastic about dosagestar epoch. Maybe you wouldn't do a phase one study of venetoclax plus epoch in people, which included some regular DLBCL people, some of whom actually perished on that study. Uh, you know, you might have actually had some restraint, had some sense, had some desire to have a control arm, you know, at least in uh, Smart Start, et cetera. Mm. Okay, that's good. You, 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 you had some uh, the big picture drawing about the, the, the field and how you, how you deal in your medical decision making. I think that's an important point. Then we go into a, a, another topic that is very specific to oncology. It's crossover. Oh, yeah. So... Basically, you explain uh, when crossover is desirable, when it's uh, problematic. Uh, you give some example. Maybe you, you, you want to update because we have so much example. Um, can you speak about crossover? What is crossover? And, and give some general thoughts about that? Sure. Um, you know, one thing I have to say is that when I started working on crossover uh, back in 2012, um, the field was, you know, I think really fundamentally confused. People had trials with crossover, they said, and there were no survival benefit. They said there would have been a survival benefit had it not been for crossover. They had trials without crossover, um, where you really wondered if the trial was even ethical or correct. Um, there was lack of conceptual clarity here. Um, so, it, it, you know, what we did for many years was trying to insert some clarity. 
And one thing we wanted to draw, a distinction we want to draw, is that the reason this is so commonly misunderstood is that people don't have a way to think about it clearly. But before I get to that, maybe I should just actually see what crossover is. In other fields of medicine, like psychiatry, you can have crossover in a study. You can randomize people who are depressed to SSRI or sugar pill. You can then see how depressed they are. You can then stop all therapy, have a washout period of six weeks, 12 weeks, and then the people got SSRI can get sugar pill and vice versa. So you can do both between arm comparisons and intra-individual comparisons because you have an endpoint that is a short-term endpoint that's you know reversible, how you feel. In oncology, our endpoints are more like mile, mile marker posts. They're irreversible long-term endpoints. We can't do that kind of crossover and measure things and see how they, you know, with or without treatment. We have irreversible endpoints like your first progression, second progression. So <clears throat> when we talk about uh, crossover in oncology, what we typically mean is unidirectional crossover. People who are initially assigned to the control arm are given a path to the experimental drug, whereas people initially assigned to the experimental drug, when they progress, they're given the subsequent standard of care. And I think the reason there's so much confusion about this is people don't realize there are two fundamentally different situations in oncology. There are places where you want crossover, you really, really want it, you need it. In fact, it's unethical not to have it. And there are situations where you really don't want it, you don't need it. God forbid, please don't put it in there. And then the complexity is you either get it or you don't get it. And so we have a four by four kind of table. You want it and you get it, that's good. You don't want it, you don't get it, that's good. But you want it and you don't get it, that's very bad. And you don't want it and you get it, that's also very bad. And each on randomized control trial in oncology falls within this kind of framework. Um, and uh, you know it's often difficult to explain this without some examples. Maybe we'll talk through a good example of you didn't want it and you got it, and a good example of you wanted it and you didn't get it. And maybe that'll help the, the listeners. Yeah, go on. Uh, okay, so let's start with yeah, I think you didn't want it and you got it. And I think the greatest example of you didn't want it and you got it. And by the way, these were the examples that, you know, I mean, uh, for years I had found, I mean, I've been looking for these examples. I found these examples. And we put in that paper with Alison Haslam in uh, Annals of Oncology in 2014, and it's in the book. By the way, I re really recommend this paper specifically. It's a two-page paper, simple, very clear crossover when it's desirable or when it's problematic Annals of Oncology. Yeah, oh, thanks. Yeah, no, really, I think it's a great paper. <laughs> It's going to get on, read go by on. five more people probably. Yeah, no, no, I don't know, but yeah, it's, it's one of really nice papers for you. So um, thank you for that. Um, so, you know, what is the example? The example I think of is Cipollucil T. Cipollucil T is a cancer therapeutic vaccine. It's different than, you know, uh, uh, the HPV vaccine. HPV vaccine supposedly prevents cancer by preventing you from getting the virus itself that causes the cancer. Okay, that's one type of vaccine. Um, cancer therapeutic vaccines, you take somebody who already has cancer, you somehow take a piece of that cancer, um, you create a vaccine with an adjuvant and the antigen that the cancer expresses, and you inject them with that in the hopes that their own body will fight off their own cancer. It's the original immunotherapy. And for 40 years, researchers have been trying and trying and trying and mostly failing, mostly failing to develop cancer therapeutic vaccines. It's, it's failed so much that, to be honest, if I was running the NIH, I would probably defund the whole thing. It's failed enough. You know, sorry, vaccine researchers, you're... You're, you're, you're failing. I mean, you've mostly failed. Uh, with one exception. The one exception is Cipollucil T, Provenge. The one exception. Wow, that's really unusual, isn't it? The first thing you should think of as a Bayesian is it's only ever failed. GVAX failed, Prostavax failed. They all fail. The one is successful. Wow, is it somehow so special? Or is there something about it that's a problematic trial design? So that's what we took a look at. And um, what we found was what we found was that it has a lot of unique features in this trial design. Of course, these are prostate cancer patients who have low volume disease. They're randomized to Provenge or placebo injection, saltwater injection, and you just watch them. Um, there's no difference in response rate. It's like a 0% response rate. There ain't nobody having tumor shrinkage after this vaccine. There's no difference in time to progression. Progression is the same. No difference. It appears to have no activity. And yet there is a survival benefit in the Provenge study. 22 to 26 months, four month benefit, it leads to US FDA approval. How can this be? A drug with no response, no PFS has an OS benefit. Well, what the proponents of it will say is that it just takes time to work. It takes a lot of time to work. But is there something else that might be a play? And it turns out this trial has crossover. So when you get randomized to Provenge, when you progress, you get 
the standard of care docetaxel, which is, by the way, a life-extending therapy in prostate cancer. When you get randomized to placebo injection, when you progress, you get thawed-out Provenge, and when you progress again, you get docetaxel. And there's an imbalance in this study. A lower fraction of people get docetaxel on the control arm, and they get it after more months than the intervention arm. So now I'm left in a quagmire. Is it the Provenge that extended the survival in the absence of a response rate, in the absence of a PFS? Or is it a delay in a proven effective therapy, docetaxel? And the most parsimonious answer is that you are hurting people by delaying the docetaxel on the control arm. You had crossover, but you didn't need it. You didn't want it. Why? Because this is a study of fundamental efficacy. You've never established the fundamental efficacy of this product. By crossing people over, you have muddied the water for all downstream endpoints like OS. You are saying there's an OS benefit because your product works up front, but it's much more likely there's an OS decrement in the control arm because you're wasting their time twice. Once, a saline injection that's a total waste of time, and then you waste some more time with your Provenge crossover, thought-out Provenge, and then finally they get the effective therapy. What are you doing to the control arm? So I think the trial design is terrible. And, and which makes more sense? In the universe of cancer therapy vaccines, they all don't work. Fail, 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 fail. One success. Or is it that this is a, this is a bias? This is the, this is the problem. So if I, if I get it right, um, uh, in other words, when fundamental efficacy has not been proven yet, if you mandate crossover, the risk mm -hmm. is to del delay uh, good therapy in the control arm, right? So that's at least one effect. If fundamental yeah. efficacy has not been proven yet, one thing it can do is delay effective therapy, but there are other effects. One is that uh, if, if a drug has, has off-target death, if it has a benefit on progression but has death through a different mechanism, then that death signal cannot be found because it's getting in both arms. Both arms have the death signal that washes it away. The other thing is some of these drugs may actually work, but early upfront administration is no better than delayed administration. And so the trial is null because you know you can't you you couldn't find a benefit because everyone is getting the benefit of the drug. So but the problem is the industry wants you to always think that the answer is um, you know, that the reason the trial didn't find an, and by the way, many of these trials don't find an OS benefit. That's the more likely thing. And the industry always wants you to think that, well, it didn't find an OS benefit because it was uh, confounded by crossover, but that's not necessarily the explanation. It might have had a benefit and it was confounded. It might have had a harm and the harm was masked, or it might have delayed effective therapy and it actually doesn't work. And that's the provenge, the delayed effective therapy actually worked. Can, can, yeah. you, can you touch upon uh, the ethical problem? You did a work with. <laughs> Christine Grady. Yeah. I think that was really, really interesting because many times we receive as a, as a pushback that it's not ethical to, to propose crossover. Yeah. What is your answer to that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the reasons people say it's not ethical to, uh, or it, it's, 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 it's not ethical to omit crossover, even fundamental efficacy, is that they enter the picture believing the product works. And if you really believe in your heart that it works, you'll want to offer everyone some path to get it. But the point that Chris, Chris Grady and I, who's the head of bioethics at the NIH, we made in, the, in this essay was that in a prerequisite to even run a trial, an ethical prerequisite to run any study, is the study has to be able to give you useful information. Mm -hmm. If the study cannot give you useful information, it is an unethical study. You don't need to run a study. If you cannot get any useful information out of a study, it is unethical. And our point is that when you build in crossover in studies of fundamental efficacy, you are making it unethical because I can't answer the question, does this product actually have a role in this disease? Does it actually help? The Cipolucyl T study is a great example. I have no idea at the end of that study if Cipolucyl T extended life four months or if a delay of docetaxel cost life four months. Mm. I don't know. So... <clears throat> You know, you can tell yourself whatever you want about crossover, but what you did was you ruined the study and you might as well run no study at all and I can just give you credit for it, you know? Yeah, I'm sure, you know, sell the product. Um, uh, but we run studies to get information. Studies have to be able to give information. This study can't, it can't answer the question. And most studies, I mean, I think nearly all studies of fundamental efficacy with crossover, have muddied the water in a way I have no idea if the product helps, if it hurts, if it could be given early versus late, if it actually is killing people, I have no idea. I have not answered any question at all. Um, and it shouldn't be done in fundamental efficacy studies. Now we can come to the other bucket when it should be done. Yeah. So the other bucket when it should be done. <coughs> a good example. You have a drug that's new, sexy, has some role in a cancer, 
and you prove in the second line setting it has a survival advantage. Something that comes to mind is um, checkpoint inhibitors, second line bladder cancer, checkpoint inhibitors, second line head and neck cancer. You prove that this is better than dealer's choice chemotherapy, OS benefit, New England Journal paper. You prove it. This is better than dealer's choice chemotherapy in the second line. What should happen immediately thereafter? The standard of care in the United States immediately changes. We are giving checkpoint inhibitors second line, second line, second line, survival benefits, survival benefits, survival benefit. Now the company, of course, they want to run the study in the front line. Why do they want to do that? Because market share is bigger. More time on drug, more people to get drug, more money in your pocket. You know, that's what they want. And so they're doing the upfront study, like Keynote 48, like Javelin 100, a study where you're moving a drug that already has a role in a disease upfront. And when you do, and all the kidney cancer frontline studies of Axipembro and Nevocab, you know, Nevocabo, all these studies, they're all moving up drug that we already know works in the latter line. So when you're moving it up and you run a randomized control trial, here, you're asking the question, is the routine upfront administration of the novel costly drug better than what? Better than what you're already doing, which is giving the drug second line. Better than what you're already doing, which is giving the drug second line. Not better than a world where you never get access to the drug. Why? That world is a cruel, barbaric world, you know? And by the way, if they can't afford in that other world to give access to the drug second line, what makes you think that they'll give access to the drug front line when you get a positive study result? You know, they can't afford the drug on the back end. They're not going to be able to afford the drug for more people for longer on the front end. That makes no sense. So you, in those studies, when you take a drug that's already proven benefit in the latter line and try to move it up front, you have to have crossover. It needs to be 100%. For instance, Shine. You know, when you progress on BR, you should be getting ibrutinib. But, of course, they don't do a good job of that. Um, uh, all the kidney cancer frontline studies do a lousy job, and we've documented that with Jack Sharp. I think we have a whole paper with Ashray Maniar in the European Journal of Cancer where we go through all the post-progression checkpoint inhibitors, and it's often bad. Um, Keynote 48 has you, terrible... I think you did it in uh, renal cancer also. Yeah, renal yeah. cancer was yeah. the Jack yeah. Sharp jam on Network Open. Ashray Maniar did it all tumor types. Um, and we have, we have something work in progress that'll push it even further. Um, you see it again um, with um, Dervalumab in Pacific. They're not getting Pembro on, you know, when they have lung cancer. Checkmate 816. 816 and Empower. And Empower 10. 10 50%. You know. And by the way, I see these Checkmate 816 authors. Some snarky thing to say that we don't know what we're talking about. Look, you're running a trial, Checkmate 816. You're running a trial where when the control arm has metastatic disease, many, many people are never getting a checkpoint inhibitor. Whose practice is that? That's grossly negligent. You know, that's grossly negligent. And people are eligible for checkpoint inhibitor because they are entering a study where they could be randomized into a checkpoint inhibitor. Treatment. Of course. So not, only, not only should they get a checkpoint inhibitor, they could get a checkpoint inhibitor, they ought to get a checkpoint inhibitor, they need to be getting a checkpoint inhibitor, and they're not, and they're not. And that is a delinquent trial. And what, what is the failure here? Of course, the company, when they want to take a drug that they're giving second line, third line, or metastatic disease, and move it to adjuvant frontline disease to a bigger market share, of course, they want to run a trial where they don't give it at all to the control arm because it stacks the deck in the favor of them. They're going to more likely to win, of course. And they're more likely to win both for PFS and for OS. We see the same with Adora. When you progress on Adora, you shouldn't be getting um, gefitinib. You should be getting osimertinib because we already have flora. Okay, they want to not give their product on the back end, okay? But they have to be compelled to give it so that we can answer the question in the United States, is it better to pay for the new costly drug for so many people or can I get the same outcome by giving it to fewer people at lower price with less toxicity when they progress, when they have relapse? That's the question. And so in trials that seek to move drug up, you need crossover. You must have crossover when you don't have crossover. It's very, very bad. And so this is what Allison Haslam and I outlined. This is why crossover is confusing. Because is it good? Is it bad? It depends. Did you want it and you get it? That's good. Did you not want it and you not get it? That's good. But if you didn't want it and you get it, like Ciploozal T, that's bad. And if you want it and you didn't get it, like, you know, so many studies, mm. that's bad. And these days, we are in an era right now, these five years, people are trying to move these drugs up front. The other thing I want to say. You know, if you're the PI of a study trying to move it up front, I know people are very proud to be the PI of the study. Listen, I hate to break it to you. Taking a drug that's already proven a benefit in the latter line and moving it up front, you're not exactly the most brilliant scientist out there. It's a very obvious idea. Anyone can think of it to give it to more people up front. That's not obvious. There's no, nothing clever to that. Okay, it works in second line. Does it work in front line? Very obvious and natural question. Okay, the only thing you can do as a PI is ensure integrity. And integrity means that the control arm, when they progress, you ought to give it. And the company has access to the drug. They can give it for free. They can build it into the protocol. You can demand yeah. it in the protocol. There are, pro there are protocol where, where, where it's uh, already... It's done. Yeah, 
provide you. It's yeah. built in. And you as the PI, you have one job. Your one job is saying, if you don't do this the right way, I won't put my name on it. That's your one job. And you know what I see? I see them fail over and over and over again and walk it all the way to the first author, NEJM, first author, Lancet. That's not good enough for patients. I just saw recently a PI had the courage to say online, I don't know if you saw this, just yesterday the PI said that just because something has always been that way doesn't mean it has to be that way in the future. Okay. And I told myself, okay. this is a brave PI because the implication of that quote means no more unethical control arms and we can have good post-protocol therapy just because it was a problem in the past doesn't mean we must yeah. perpetuate the problem. We can fix it. I think you just said it, but uh, that's important for maybe for everybody to understand that crossover and subsequent treatment is uh, can be can be confound can be the same definition so yeah. sometimes it's called crossover sometimes sometimes it's called subsequent therapy post progression th therapy post protocol therapy this is all the same concept you should have the tr you should have it or not depending on the situation yeah absolutely so post progression therapy therapy upon relapse subsequent therapy or crossover when you are already using a drug product in a ladder line, when that ladder line choice is supported by randomized control trial evidence showing a survival benefit, and you are testing in a randomized trial the routine upfront administration of that product versus the standard of care, the current standard of care, it has to include giving that product in the second line. And if you're not, you are running, frankly, a bullshit study. I'm sorry, I have to say, it's a bullshit study, and they know it's bullshit, I know it's bullshit, they know it's bullshit, and then they even sometimes have the audacity to say, you know, things like, oh, you know, like in this recent lace wing, we should have blinded it so people didn't get access to our product on the back oh, end. Oh, yeah, I saw can, that, you know, yeah. they're, they're, they're just telling, I mean, this is not complicated. When I teach it to a first-year medical student, they instantly see the logic of it, they see it, but it is very difficult for some attendings to understand. Why? Because people are making a career off of this. It is very difficult for them in their own mind to push back because they worry that if I tell the company, hey, this ain't right, they're not going to ask me to be the PI. They're going to ask my buddy, my friend, my colleague. You have to stand up for it. You have to stand up for it. Your trial, and the last thing I'll say, yeah. your trial, it does not help anyone in any country. In the country you go to and run your trial in where they don't have that as a post-protocol therapy or as crossover, you have to go to some country where they don't have access to it. That's what they do. That, that country member, the people in that country are not helped by your trial because guess what? If they can't afford the drug second line, they ain't going to be able to afford the drug front line if the trial is positive. They're not helped there. And you know who's not helped? We're not helped here because we are giving the drug second line and we don't know from your trial if the routine up at front administration is better than what we're currently doing. You're not helping us here. You're not helping them there. You're, 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 you're screwing over people just to make money for the company and you're giving it away for very little. Because the company is making all the money, and the PI is just getting a tiny pittance of it, even if they're taking money. It's not the, it's not the bulk of it. It's just a pittance. Uh, um, I really hate this. Uh, I, hate this. I, I just want to say something, because I, I saw something on Twitter, I think, that uh, uh, we are advocating for per perfect trial, and it's, it's not, not, yeah, it's not right, possible right. or something like that. But <coughs> I, think, I think, honestly, I think it's possible. Uh, uh, Sometimes you have trial with a, a really adequate post-production treatment. And the other thing is, we, we are advocating for patients. I mean, we are not just uh, criticizing trial because uh, we like criticizing trial. It's not, it's not a kind of uh, uh, phil philosophical posture. It's just patient advocacy. I mean, you know, it's, it's not advocating for the perfect trial. It's advocating for like a decent standard. If you walk into a restroom and people are just urinating all over the floor and you say, listen, uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not asking for the moon here, but at least aim for the toilet. That's what we're asking for. At least aim for the toilet. I mean, we're talking about a very simple, a very simple thing that's within your control. It's not asking for a perfect trial. We're not asking for 100,000 people randomized. We're not asking for OS for everything. We're asking you if the standard of care in your clinic today is you're giving it second line and you're running the trial then god you need to give it second line the control arm it's not asking for the moon it's asking to aim at the toilet it's a bare minimum request when you walk into a restroom and it's a mess i mean i'm not asking for a lot here just aim at the toilet that's all i'm asking for aim at the toilet okay uh, on that positive on note. that positive note <laughs> and i think that's a good analogy because no, no, what you get at the end it, is a mess it's it, a mess it, it, it's, it's not perfect trials it's, it's, it's just perfect. some very basic things and I think it's doable. It's doable, doable because the company that are running trials can can do it. I mean, if they want. If they want, and and of course, you know, you. I mean, it's not like. And sometimes it's done. And, so, and sometimes it is done. You know, when people push back, yeah. sometimes it's done. And you know, it's not it's we, not rocket we, science why yeah. they don't they, why they're trying to drag their feet, and it's not rocket science why people acquiesce. 
And you know, you don't like my metaphor of the of the restroom. Uh, <laughs> uh, I like it, but maybe if we can so, move on. Yeah, we can move on. We'll yeah, move I mean, on to it. Less colorful. Yeah, less, yeah, colorful yeah, yeah. less colorful. It's not in the book. You know, that's, that's yeah, yeah, it'll be malignant part two. You have a you have a malignant part two. Something very original. Urinal edition. Yeah. Yeah, 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 part two, yeah. Okay. Uh -huh. um, the last, the, the last point of this chapter, you, 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 you're talking about sample size and multipl multiplicity, and you give the example of erlotinib in pancreatic cancer. Oh yeah. Maybe you can build on that, and and after that, you, you will be talking about the portfolio of trials, and I think this is a really important thing: M multiplicity, bevacizumab, erlotinib. Maybe it's the last point. Yeah, yeah, okay. I um, saw you checking the. No, I'm checking my time because yeah. I feel like. Well, uh, one thing I want to oh, say. Oh, we can. No, no, no. We'll, I'll yeah. talk about it, and then we'll then we'll take a pause because this is all chapter nine stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. We're so, still in one chapter, so I want to say this this section of the book nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Technical. I mean, yeah, technical, and I think like you know these days many people are doing research in these spaces, but I promise you, ten years ago when we set out to do these things, there was no it was like crickets on all these issues. It was crickets. And in a lot of these things, it took like years to do the work, document it, publish the first paper. That was really a lot of work. And so, you know, I'm telling you very quickly, but it, it's coming after, you know, I polished this nugget for a while. Um, but it wasn't so easy. You know, the peer reviewers initially, what, you know, oh, I don't know about Krauss. You know, they have all sorts of excuses mm. and, it, and it had to break, break them of their habits, teach them something new. Okay, let's talk about sample size. The point I want to make about sample size, you know, sample size is like Goldilocks. It's too hot. It's too cold. It's just right. Okay. Uh, if you have a small sample size study and you look at an endpoint that's not the primary endpoint, and I'm looking at you, oligometastatic radiating people, and I'm looking at you, Lartruvo, and I'm looking at you, you know, so many underpowered phase two studies, you, you're not helping anybody, frankly. You are running a trial that has a huge risk of false negative, that there's a real benefit and you're not finding it because your trial is so severely deficient and underpowered. And you're also running the risk of a false positive and an exaggerated result. When you do find a benefit, it's far more likely to be a false positive and exaggerated result. Underpowered studies are problematic. It can be even called power failure, and there's a huge literature on it. And it's plagued psychology and neuroscience. It's decimated things. It's led us to have entire fields where most of what we believe is, is wrong because we have never had adequate power. In oncology, we have many examples of that. Maybe in the next video, we'll talk a little bit more about... Um, uh, olaritumab or Lartruvo because it has a very interesting regulatory history. Okay, underpowered is bad. But the other problem in oncology is overpowered is bad too. Overpowered means you have so many people in your trial, you can find statistically significant but clinically meaningless distinctions. And the great example of that is erlotinib plus or minus gem, sorry, gemcitabine plus or minus erlotinib in pancreas cancer where it has a statistically significant overall survival benefit, received US Food and Drug Administration approval, and the OS benefit is 10 days, 10 days. And you have to ask yourself, how can we justify the administration of a $70,000 a year medicine for 10 days with toxicity for 10 days, you know? And why are you finding a 10 day benefit? Because you have too many people in your trial. You're powered for trivial benefits. And we have so much of this today in oncology, so much overpowered. Yeah. And uh, the last thing, the examples of portfolios and multiplicity, but maybe <coughs> we can talk. Next time, maybe? Next time. Let me yeah. think. Uh, I, mean, I, it, think I think it's an important topic. It's but, an important uh, topic, and it's a long we, topic. We covered already pretty technical topics. Yeah, so maybe okay. We can, we'll put it on the next yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what are we doing here? I mean, what I'm doing, I mean, what, what I hope to be doing in these chapters is taking you through a flow chart, which is like how are drugs approved. You know, a third of drugs are approved based on response rate. We're going to talk about in a future chapter. Well, response rate can be problematic. One, you know, there's some measurement error there. Two, you know, how do you compare a response rate for a drug today against a benchmark response rate? There's historical bias. Um, you know, uh, observational studies can be unreliable. You know, there's some problems there. The second reason we approve drugs is progression-free survival. I think in the earlier chapters, I told you what PFS is, how it's an unreliable surrogate. We'll talk more about that in subsequent chapters. And then we have drugs that improve overall survival in randomized controlled trials. In the next few chapters, we'll talk about, well, we've already talked about some reasons why that, that can be fraught. One, um, crossover. You, you've misused crossover in one way. I think we're going to talk about the control arm. Is the control arm what we're yeah. really doing? I think we're going to talk about a little bit about non-inferiority and the margin. I think we're going to talk a little bit more about multiple hypothesis testing, multiplicity. That'll be the next part. And, and, and so I guess what I want to say is, is that these are known and documented biases. And why do they exist? It's not that anyone is really bad. It's that the system is incentivizing the creation of promising results so we can sell products. I mean, that's the big motivating force here. And who in the system has 
the courage, I think the, the intelligence, the wherewithal, the power to say, we need better for our patients. Um, the patients, to some degree, they have a lot of courage, um, but they may not understand the intricacies of some of these design features. Um, the industry's not gonna do it. They're the tiger. You know, we're the villagers, we have to build a fence. It's up to us, the oncologists. And so the only way you can, you know, be a good oncologist is to really recognize these problems. These are really well-documented problems. If you read that paper and you believe that nuts lower your risk of colon cancer, I mean, I think you're a little bit gullible. I mean, you're gullible. You may not know the whole history of observational studies, vibration of effects, et cetera. I mean, why that study would be highly likely to be spurious. And you know what? In the years since, I've, heard, I've not heard any talk of nuts. You know, it is nuts. And, and it's not just nuts, statins. You know, they keep talking statins. Statins improve outcome in metastatic cancer. You know, you, you could take somebody with metastatic cancer and give them all the statin you want. That tumor ain't going to shrink. And so I have a huge doubt that statins improve outcome in the adjuvant setting because things that work in the adjuvant setting usually make tumors shrink in the metastatic setting. So statins, metformin, all these things. We're blowing all this money on these pipe dreams. These is, this is confounding in observational studies. You know, it's vibration of effect stuff. Um, you know, so we're making these mistakes because people just don't know that these are very, very low credibility studies. And some of these studies are so low credibility, you shouldn't launch a thousand randomized trials like we are. When you talk about randomized trials, you know, historical controls can be wrong. Um, and if you know the story of promecytobom, you'll feel differently about EPOC, I think. You'll feel differently about um, smart start if you really know promecytobom. Crossover, when you know crossover, I think you'll feel differently about um, Keno 48. M many, many trials. I mean, so many. many, There's many like, yeah, I can't even many. keep track. Um, and it, may, it, may, it, may, it may not necessarily change your practice, but it may refine how you will <laughs> practice, how you, you will advise, how maybe you will choose between many options. We were talking about that recently. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, look, it's, it's one thing. It's, it, you need to know what you're getting into. You know, if you took bevacizumab post-progression expecting 12 months survival benefit, you know, that's not what you're going to get. You're going to get 1.5 months benefit, you know. Um, uh, you need to know what you're getting into. You need to have, you know, you, you need to take away the rose-colored glasses. You need to see the world as it is. This is, I mean, what we're talking about, we're talking about the truth. This is the truth. Do these products, as we're giving them, actually help people? Is it, they're costly, they're expensive, there's lots of forces that want you to use them. Those forces can kind of trick you, turn a blind eye to these problems, but do they actually help people? This is people we're talking about, human beings. What would you want if it's your own? You know, I just said it on, you know, we were on rounds recently, and how many times did I say, this were my own mother, what would I want, it, what would mm, you do? Mm, what would you push mm, for? Mm, what would you fight for? Mm. What would you want? How would you counsel your own mother? Very often. We, Very often. Yeah. And do you mean to tell me, if it's your own mother on the control arm of that study and she progressed and the standard of care is Pembro, she's not getting Pembro? I don't think so. I think it's your own mother. She is getting Pembro. And if you're going to do it for your own mother, then why aren't you doing it for everyone else? Because they're somebody else's mother and they should be treated like your mother. And I think that should be the ethical principle of trials. You have to treat everyone as if they're your own mother. And, um, you know, these sorts of things that deviate from it. I mean, of course, it bothers me at an intellectual level. It bothers me at an emotional level. It bothers me in a patient care level as a doctor who's got to go out there every day. And, you know, the last thing I want to say to your point um, is that, you know, and this has come up so many times over the last year that, you know, you've been out here, which is that um, we wear different hats. I mean, this is the book written with my policy hat on, my mm. scientific hat, my policy hat. But when you see me on the wards making decisions, you know, I can't always wear my policy hat. I'm, I'm wearing my patient advocate hat. I'm wearing I'll do anything for my patient hat. Uh, I'm wearing I'm going to do my best job of interpreting the evidence, communicating my interpretation to the patients, talking about the uncertainty, and helping them make the choice that's right for them, even if it's not the right for me. I'm wearing all these kinds, of, it's a different hat. And so, you know, in the real world, we all have to, you know, use uncontrolled studies, sure. But that doesn't mean that, you know, we can't advocate for better evidence. That doesn't we, mean- we, we, we were talking about that yeah. yesterday and I think there's no contradiction. There's no contradiction, that's right. Having guess. these different hats and these maybe different uh, position. Yeah, there's no contradiction because, I mean, the policy hat is fighting for evidence for your patient. And then the patient had is making the best of the evidence that you have. Um, you know, I mean, frankly, which I'm going to talk about, I'm going to do a whole video on that smart start, but like an uncontrolled study of 60 people with lymphoma, you know, thanks for, thanks for taking 60 people that could have been randomized. I mean, it's just a, literally, it is, you have done the phase one, you know, the, you, you, you know, that Len at a certain dose did not reach MTD. You know what the dose is going forward, randomize or don't proceed. I mean, we know you're not going to get any response rate that you'll be able to hang your hat on. 
We know that for 30 years. It's no secret. Anyone who's been in this field knows that you can't get useful information out of that. What are you squandering the most precious resource in the research community is? It's not money. It's not drugs. It's people. You're squandering that. And why are you squandering that? One has to wonder. And the motivations for doctors are so perverse. You can make a career off of squandering patients in uncontrolled studies. You can make a life, you know, and, 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 and the system has to be fixed so that we incentivize the right choices. So we incentivize people to participate in pooled studies. So we do more randomized trials. And that's the policy hat. And I think it's also the patient hat because that's what you need for the person tomorrow. Um, so, you know, I really think this is the meat of the book. Like the yeah, most, yeah. you know. And next chapter will be also, I think it's one of my favorite. We'll, we'll go back to basic principles of oncology. And I think it's a very, very important chapter. So these are maybe more technical chapters. So I don't know uh, how you would recommend to maybe people not familiar with those subjects, how to... To sure. handle it, sure. this, but I think you you're doing a great job to explain it in a, in a, in way that are very comprehensive. They should so read the book, but no, just, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think if you listen to this, you read the book. It's an audio book too. You can listen to the audio chapters. I think and, you can and, get and, a lot and, out and, of it. And many things are common sense. I think. Yes, it's common yeah, sense. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know when you teach the crossover thing to first year student, and you know, I have a little. He he's seen me do it. I have um, I I create sort of uh, stories. That, that take away oncology, make it about a cardiac device, they tell a different story, but the same the principle to elucidate, mm, mm. you know, with a cardiology example. Mm. Sometimes when I lecture to oncology audiences, I use my cardiology example, which I've invented. They don't know that because they don't know cardiology. Um, why do I use a cardiology example? You take away the emotional valence of being an oncologist mm. and you just show them the crossover question in a cardiology example. Mm. They instantly agree with the logic. Yeah. Yes, of course, it's I approved see, there yeah. and you move it up front. And then you show them that's, Keynote 48, that's, yeah, you know, yeah. this trial, that's Keynote 177, yeah. that's what you're doing, but you're not doing it there, you don't see it there, because we all become blind to these sorts mm. of things. So, I guess, uh, any okay. closing thoughts? No, thank you very much for doing this again, and I think uh, those are all very important issues. I think it's about, as you said many times, patient advocacy and uh, trying, to, trying to improve <coughs> the field. And, and I guess the uh, last thing I'd say is like, that's why we say positive note. Positive note. I guess, uh, yeah. yeah, I, I guess, after, yeah, yeah. yeah on that positive note. I mean, the last thought I would have is that I am, I'm heartened that more people are doing research in this space than 10 years ago or five years ago. Mm. And the book was written in 2018. The research that preceded, you know, has hundreds and hundreds of citations that took a lot of years to develop. Um, uh, I'm heartened that more people are doing it. But sometimes I wish I'm still puzzled that not more people are, in, you know, trying to make mm. these problems better. Mm. And we just have the perpetuation of the problems, which we'll talk about. But... On that positive note. On that positive note. Thank you, Vinay. Thank you, Timothy. See Until you soon. next time. Until next time.